Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Monday, February 1st. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. A massive winter storm walloping the northeast as tens of millions deal with severe snow. With the impeachment trial of former President Trump set to begin in the Senate in just over a week, a major shift on his legal team. A number of prominent lawyers are out after he reportedly refused their defense strategy. And with new coronavirus variants spreading rapidly in the United States and the economy stalled, can President Joe Biden get the needed votes to pass a major stimulus and vaccine effort? This and much more today on You News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. A massive winter storm walloping the northeast as tens of millions deal with severe snow. With the impeachment trial of former President Trump set to begin in the Senate in just over a week, a major shift on his legal team. A number of prominent lawyers are now out after he reportedly refused their defense strategy. And with new coronavirus variants spreading rapidly in the United States and the economy is stalled, can President Biden get the votes he needs to pass a major stimulus and vaccine effort? We'll take a look today on Unios. Hello and welcome to You News for this Monday. It's the first day of February and I'm Andrea Linares. Thank you so much for joining us today. We begin with a monster storm slamming into the northeast. That major system blanketing parts of the region with up to a foot of snow or even more, impacting tens of millions of people. Grecia Lastra has the very latest. Overnight, a winter whiteout. Plows out in full force, trying to keep up with the massive amount of snowfall expected throughout Tuesday. Oh, might be stuck. Drivers braving the treacherous road conditions, while others are forced to pull over to wait it out. In Ohio, cars spinning, trying to get traction any way they can. This man jumping on his bumper, trying to help the tires dig in, while others ended up in the median. Traffic backed up for hours after a fatal wreck there. The Nor'easter producing blizzard-like conditions in New York and New Jersey, both declaring a state of emergency. The Big Apple halting COVID vaccinations, even for those with scheduled appointments. Last thing we want to do is urge our seniors to come out in the middle of a storm like this. It doesn't make sense. So we're rescheduling Monday appointments for vaccine. On the iconic Hudson River, the Coast Guard using an ice cutter, slicing through three to five inches of ice buildup. To ensure that the waterway is open for commercial traffic. Snow emergencies are also in effect in Boston and Philadelphia. More than 250 wrecks reported across Virginia. This fire truck flipping over. Fortunately, no serious injuries there. Chicago now digging out from just under a foot of snow. Their second snowstorm in less than a week. These officers out to help stranded drivers teaming up to push their own SUV back on the road and north of the storm in Minneapolis. This terrified woman rescued after falling through the ice trying to save her dog. This is Grecia Lasta reported for You News. 
incredible video there. And now to Washington and a major shift in Donald Trump's defense team. The move happening a little over a week before the former president's second impeachment trial is set to begin. And now the question is, who will defend Trump? Two new attorneys just named ahead of that trial. New administration. Former President Donald Trump has named two new attorneys to head up his impeachment defense ahead of next week's trial in the Senate. This comes after all five members of his defense team called it quits over the weekend. One point of friction with his previous team was Trump, one of the attorneys to focus on his election fraud claims. But advisors have tried to steer Trump away from that argument. Now leading the team are attorneys David Schoen and Bruce Castor Jr., both experienced in criminal defense. Schoen and Castor agree that this impeachment is unconstitutional, a fact 45 senators voted in agreement with last week. This is not a trial of the president, but of a private citizen. In a press release, Schoen said it was an honor to represent the 45th president. He has been a lead counsel in several high-profile cases and had been approached by Jeffrey Epstein to join his legal team prior to his death. Bruce Castor Jr. is a former district attorney in Pennsylvania and says it is a privilege to defend the former president. Meanwhile, Democrats have been building out their case. The American people were witness to what happened. We all were witness to what happened. Trump is charged with incitement of insurrection after many of his supporters stormed the Capitol building on January 6. Democrats seeking Trump's conviction do face an uphill climb, and that's because they must convince at least 17 of the U.S. Senate's 50 Republicans that Trump is guilty of inciting supporters to attack the Capitol. And so far, many experts believe there are not enough Republican votes to convict. And in other political news, the South Carolina Republican Party is formally censuring GOP Representative Tom Rice for his vote to impeach former President Donald Trump. Rice was one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump after a mob of his supporters stormed the building as Congress met to certify Joe Biden's election win. Rice said Trump's response or failure to respond to the riot is, quote, inexcusable and was what convinced him to vote for impeachment. Meanwhile, President Biden is reportedly planning to reveal details on a commission that would look at reforming the Supreme Court. Biden first proposed a presidential commission last year. Currently, there are nine U.S. Supreme Court justices. The court is controlled by conservatives, six to three. Officials involved with the commission say the details are being finalized and could be unveiled as early as next week. In the past, Biden has vowed to appoint both Democrats and Republicans to any proposed commission. The president has said he doesn't want to pack the courts, but instead wants to look at how to reform the court system. And President Biden is set to meet today with a group of 10 Republican senators who are proposing about one-third of the $1.9 trillion the president is seeking in coronavirus aid. Meanwhile, congressional Democrats are prepared to move ahead, even without Republican support. Edwin Piti is in Washington, D.C. with the very latest on this. Edwin. 
Andrea, President Biden will welcome a group of 10 Republican senators to discuss their alternative proposal for a COVID-19 relief package. The White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki confirmed the meeting this morning, and she added that President Biden has been clear that he's open to engaging about the ideas proposed by Republican senators and is happy to have a conversation, but that his views remains regarding the amount of help needed. Senators meeting with Biden today are Susan Collins, Bill Cassidy, Bob Portman, Todd Young, Mike Rounds, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Shelley Moore, Jerry Moran, and Tom Tillis. Their offer totals roughly $618 billion, which is less than a third of the size of Biden's proposal of $1.9 trillion. It includes a third round of checks for individuals of about $1,000, $300 in weekly jobless benefits, and $160 billion for a vaccine testing, treatment, and PPE. Biden's plans include a third round of checks for $1,400, $400 in weekly jobless benefits, and $416 billion for vaccine distribution and schools. Republican Senator Bill Cassidy, who is among the 10 senators meeting with Biden this afternoon, is for reaching a bipartisan agreement, but wants smaller payments for Americans. Take a listen. We are very targeted. We're targeted to the needs of the American people, treating our tax dollars as if there are tax dollars, not just money to spend, and putting it where we need to come out of the pandemic. Now, we think there's a lot here to work for, uh, to work with. We hope we finally start getting that bipartisan and with the White House negotiation. So far, we've not received it. Meanwhile, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders criticized the Republican proposal. Let's listen. So the question is not bipartisanship. The question is addressing the unprecedented crises that we face right now. If Republicans want to work with us, they have better ideas on how to address those crises. That's great. But to be honest with you, I have not yet heard that. The group of Republican senators hopes their package can be a starting point for a bill that garners bipartisan support as congressional Democrats prepare to move forward with a process known as budget reconciliation to pass Biden's plan by a simple majority in the Senate. Reporting live in Washington, D.C., Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Edwin, for all those reactions. And as Congress works on a deal, the pandemic continues its grip on Americans. Experts fearing the next wave is just weeks away as variants keep spreading. The urgency to speed up vaccinations growing with each passing day. Lorraine Gossett has the latest. January ending as the U.S.'s deadliest month of the COVID-19 pandemic, but on average, cases continuing to drop, decreasing by 32% nationwide. Hospitalizations also dropping, falling below 100,000 this week, according to the COVID tracking project. The numbers appearing to be good news, but experts fearing the next wave is just a few weeks away. We have a little breathing room right now, but if these new variants become dominant in our country, we are going to be right back where we were in November and December, and perhaps even worse. Those variants now being reported in 32 states and cases growing to more than 460. The federal government's putting new measures in place, now requiring masks to be worn on public transportation, from airplanes to taxis and ride shares. And the need to vaccinate growing more urgent. The CDC reporting states have administered 31 million of the 50 million vaccines they've received. In Dallas, cars stretched for miles. Some people turned away due to high demand. This is 
is not a vaccine. This as in Los Angeles, anti-vax protesters temporarily shut down a vaccine site at Dodger Stadium. In New York City, with doses back in stock after running out, the demand now lacking, people failing to line up like in other parts of the country, and the mayor concerned about preliminary data that shows a racial disparity in who is getting the COVID vaccine. Instead of focusing on the Latino community of Washington Heights, a place that really was hit hard by COVID, um, instead, the approach was somehow conducive to folks from outside of the community coming and getting vaccinated, but not folks who really live right there in Washington Heights. Totally backwards. Meanwhile, West Virginia emerging as an example of success. 100% of doses received have already been administered to the elderly and first responders. Teachers and school staff up next on the priority list. Virginia, that's what we did. We looked at this, instead of trying to create a bureaucratic model of how to get this administered and get going, we got going and we knew that it was all about age, age and age. And we knew that absolutely our elderly, especially those people, want to go to their local pharmacies and they want to go to their local health clinics and everything. And so we dispersed the National Guard and we just got after it. And the CDC is reporting that three and a half million residents and staff at nursing homes have already received the vaccine. The Centers for Medicaid and Medicare reporting that cases at nursing homes have steadily dropped over the past month, meaning possibly that the vaccine is already showing its positive effects. Meanwhile, with the South African variants, we are now knowing that we have three cases in the country. The first two, of course, reported in South Carolina, the latest case reported in Maryland. Meanwhile, the Department of Defense and HHS has just reached, have just reached a multi-million dollar deal with an Australian company to mass produce an at-home COVID-19 test that has a 95% accuracy. Back to you, Andrea. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. And joining me now to continue this conversation is Dr. Adrian Burroughs. He's a family medicine physician in the Orlando, Florida area. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Burroughs. Welcome. Thank you. So the vaccine thank you, thank rollout you. gave people a lot of hope that there was an end in sight, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel, but the new variants are threatening the fight against this pandemic. What worries you the most about these new strains we are hearing about? Yes, so these new strains that we're seeing are much more transmissible. That means it's much more easy for you to get um, coronavirus from your from your contacts. Um, and we, we're also seeing that um, that you know these these variants are are coming very rapidly to the country. And you know you all reported that you had seen the strains in uh, South Carolina and Maryland. And I would suggest that they're probably in many other states as well. How likely is it that there are different U.S. variants right now, perhaps going around? I also remember not long ago, the CDC issued a report that indicated some of these variants could become dominant by March. Yes, so I, I do believe that we have our own U.S. variants. I just don't think that we've detected them as of yet. Um, if you watch what's happened with coronavirus, you know, large countries are developing um, these mutated strains. And I believe that you'll see um, some U.S. Um, dominant strains um, coming in the next several weeks. And what is known about whether these variants that we are discussing now affect children? And if so, how? 
Yeah, so right now we are definitely seeing um, more infection, higher infection rates in children. We haven't yet determined if that's because of the variant strains. They're still looking into that. But it is clear that we're seeing more cases overall in children, either from the new mutated strains or just from the, from the, from the um, coronavirus that we've already been accustomed to. Some health officials are arguing for not reserving that second dose of the vaccine in order to vaccinate as many people as possible. And in fact, just moments ago, the White House agreed with these uh, arguments. What's your thought on this? Yeah, so I understand the rationale behind trying to do that, vaccinating as many people as possible. The, the reality, though, is that, you know, the, the manufacturers are giving you uh, two doses on purpose because we find that the, the efficiency rates, the efficacies of these vaccines work better when you take both doses. You know, when you take a single dose of the Moderna or Pfizer vaccines that we currently have, you do have some immunity, about 50 percent in most cases. Um, but I but it would be it'd be better if we had both doses. I agree with that statement of yours. Now, how long do you estimate the pandemic will go on for? Will it become like the flu, something that we just have to deal with every single year and perhaps develop a yearly vaccine? Well, that's a very, very common question. And the reality is we don't know. You know, if you asked me that question um, a month ago versus now, I would have two different answers. We, we really don't know. Um, I think that, you know, the great thing is that we have vaccinations coming. We have the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is right around the corner, which will be a single dose. And I think the more people that get vaccinated, um, the, the better off we're going to be, obviously. But in terms of whether we'll need more vaccinations going forward after this year, we don't know the answer to that, specifically because of these mutations. That's the million dollar question, and we continue to learn something new every single day. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Adrian Burroughs, family medicine physician from the Orlando, Florida area. You take care of yourself. You too. Thank you so much. Thank you. And coming up next, another member of Congress testing positive for the coronavirus, that despite receiving his second dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. And the Black Lives Matter movement nominated for one of the world's most prestigious awards, the details and so much more when we come back. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. Although the first Central American migrant caravan of this year was disbanded in Guatemala a few days ago, shelters for those passing through Mexico are already full. In Tapachula, on Mexico's southern border, the lines outside the refugee aid commission offices seem endless. 
I call the shelters and they don't answer the phones. Anyway, they are full, the officials here tell me. The commission's backlog is huge. More than 70,000 asylum applications are unanswered. For the moment, we will continue to wait because there is no other shelter nearby. We will continue sleeping on the streets as we are doing at the moment. The pandemic has further complicated the path of those heading north. And President Biden winning the White House so far hasn't caused Mexico to relax immigration controls. A few days ago in Sonoita, on the border with Arizona, Mexican National Guard members beat up several Central American migrants. And I said, oh, they're going to beat us up. And yes, it was said and done. And then another one came, and that's when they grabbed El Morillo. They took him away, they beat him up, and they gave us all another beating. Events like this, plus the murder of 19 people in Tamaulipas a few days ago, have once again set off alarms among human rights defenders, who are demanding changes from President Andrés Manuel López Obrador. We are back to the beatings, to the deaths. He has to do something. He has to do an investigation. This violence has to stop. In addition, in northern states such as Coahuila, some shelters have reduced the number of available spaces. In a migrant shelter in Saltillo, there has already been mass COVID infections. Many of the migrants are now sleeping on the street, and even that isn't making them consider returning. We need the bathroom, some blankets, and if they can employ us for a week, a few days. The situation is serious, although there is some hope among those waiting at the border, due to the immigration announcements President Biden has scheduled for this week. And even though he has the majority in the Senate, that doesn't mean things are going to happen overnight. We have to wait. Reported by Jessica Zermeño, this is Gianni Aponte for U News. Violence and poverty, they are two prominent reasons often cited to explain the masses of people migrating northbound in caravans from the Central American region known as the Northern Triangle, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. But increasingly, more experts are pointing to another reason to explain why people are leaving, and that's climate change. We'll discuss the challenge this presents for the new Biden administration. But first, a conversation about the impact of climate change in the region. We're now joined by Dr. Edwin Castellanos, director of the Sustainable Economic Observatory at Universidad del Valle de Guatemala, and also lead author in a new climate change report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to be released later on this year. Welcome to You News, Edwin. Thank you for the invitation and thank you for the interest in our region. Climate wise in the Northern Triangle, what environmental trends have you been seeing in your research that could be contributing to this mass migration toward the United States? What we have observed in the last years, especially the last two decades, is that the extreme weather is becoming more extreme, particularly in terms of rainfall. So we have some years of uh, extreme uh, rainfall events, usually connected with La Nina events. But then we also have years of uh, drought, usually connected with El Nino. But uh, on top of this, what we are seeing is a change in the timing of the rainy season. Usually rain starts here in this area around May, and uh, the May rainfall is very useful for uh, small farmers who rely on this rainfall for uh, watering their fields. So in the last five years or so, we have seen a strong decrease in the amount of rainfall in May and in June. And so many of the small farmers have actually lost their crops because there is no rain to irrigate their fields. 
Now, what do you see as some of the more serious long-term impacts on migrant flows from Central America if these climate trends continue? Yes, and, and we expect to have these trends uh, increasing in the future. Models show that uh, the rainfall in the area is going to decrease substantially uh, at the end of the century. And also the extreme events, both uh, extreme uh, rainfall and also droughts are going to be more frequent, therefore uh, increasing the pressure on farmers who rely on this rainfall for their crops. There are obviously a lot of stakeholders who can influence where this all goes, but what, if anything, can be done by Central American governments to address these underlying climate crises that are in contrib contributing to local instability? Well, on one hand, uh, government can help uh, small farmers with uh, simple things like irrigation systems uh, so that they don't rely on rainfall as much as they do now. They can also help with um, economic um, aid, particularly after extreme events like the ones we observed at the end of last year, two hurricanes back to back here in the area, which uh, completely devastated many of the towns in their agricultural fields. And so uh, economic aid for sure is an important issue in the area. In the United States, some people are still debating the reality of climate change, being based in Guatemala, as you are, and working in the region. What do you believe are the biggest local obstacles to addressing these climate problems and coming up with working solutions? Is it simply political will, access to funding? What is it? Well, regardless of whether you believe in climate change or not, the fact is that in the last two decades, we have seen extreme events uh, in terms of rainfall and drought. And, and that is uh, happening and it will continue to happen. And so what we need to do is to really help uh, people in the rural areas. Uh, they are already uh, highly stressed because of violence and poverty. And these extreme weather events are basically adding to the situation of these people who are really uh, having a hard time uh, uh, trying to, to get the minimum for their survival. And so what we need is um, um, more help in the rural areas. And, and what happens is that governments often don't have enough uh, resources to, to provide for, for this help. Uh, we have also a, a huge problem of corruption in the area. So not only uh, the income in the government is not enough to provide for help, but a lot of that money in the government is not really used the best way possible, and that creates a huge problem. It's a very interesting conversation and also a very uh, difficult problem to address. Thank you so much, Dr. Castellanos. Thank you for all your insights on this very important topic. And of course, things get complicated every single year, I would say, because of hurricane season that also impacts this region. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.